listeners. This is Gerard Robinson from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Last week when I had an opportunity to speak with you, I was in beautiful Chicago. Well, today, as you know, I can't host any really, truly great show unless I have my partner, Kara. Kara, how are you? I'm okay, Gerard. I was telling you offline, I feel like I'm a little grumpy today, but I'm doing okay. I've got a, a story of the week that I think will match, but you know, as spring springs, there's a lot going on in this world. So a lot to think about, maybe just a little bit of a heavy, a heavy brain. And we'll be talking about a heady subject today anyway, with one of our good friends from EdChoice. Absolutely. Well, speaking of grumpy, and maybe that's not the right term, but there are times when people find themselves concerned, agitated, or just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And my story of the week is about <laughs> two groups who are thinking about having a historic merger. And it's the American Federation of Teachers and the American Association of University Professors. So many of our listeners know, of course, that AFT, 1.7 million members, second largest teacher organization in the country, and one of the largest labor union-focused organizations in America. But many people may not know that at the university level, we actually have the American Association of University Professors, and they represent their the interest of their colleagues, roughly 300,000 faculty members across the country. So recently, they decided to come together and have a conversation. The AAUP Council voted unanimously to recommend ratification of the affiliation with AFT at its upcoming June meeting. And if this happens, you're going to have basically the largest conglomeration wow. of K-20 education group in the nation. Now, this partnership comes together, as they say, in the backdrop of three things. Number one, attack on teachers. Number two, attack on academic freedom. And third, any persistent underfunding of public schools across the board. They also mentioned adjunct professors and the role they play with student debt. But those are three big reasons they say they want to come together. Now, through this affiliation, they can work to protect academic freedom and to have a unified voice of faculty slash teachers. As someone who's had a chance to work in the classroom, someone who's been an adjunct at the university level, I've heard these concerns for years from university faculty who say, well, I'm glad to bring in non-tenure track professors or professors who aren't on any track to become a full-time member, to have them as a part of our higher education conversation because many of them bring in professional experience, life experience, practical experience to add to the conversation. But over time, you find that in some institutions, nearly a third of the teaching faculty are in fact adjuncts. Some of them are also in another category of university graduate students. And that's beginning to crowd out a number of full-time professors or professors who've gone into the profession to have a full-time job. And so that's been a really sore point for a long time. At the K-12 level, when you see the major growth in school membership, as our friend Ben Scafferty has noted in his research on the staffing surge, the real surge is among staff, and staff are also part of unions in certain states and locales as well. And so they said, listen, we feel attacked as a profession, 
and we have people walking in our space willing to come together to do something about that. And so this is a, a really big push. But not only do they want to do this for academic tenure and to also protect free speech, they also want to do this because they're two organizations that are part of the New Deal for Higher Education. And it's not something that we've talked about here on the show, but these are two groups who support it. And they believe that for the common good, that critical thinking is under attack and that our society suffers as a result. And so they've supported what they would many call the Marshall Plan for higher education, and they have four points. Build prosperity from the bottom up. Number two, advance social, racial, and economic justice. Third, strengthen democracy and civil society. Fourth, foster knowledge and innovation. And that's worth mentioning because when we have groups come together, we often do it outside the context of a larger political agenda or an education agenda, federal or state. Well, that's just one thing to think about. But it's also worth putting into context that these two groups are coming together not only at an historic moment in American history, but their founding also occurred at historic point. So you go back to 1915 when the American Association of University Professors were founded. Guess who was their first president? John at Columbia <laughs> University and one of Professor Lovejoy at Johns Hopkins University was also a founding voice. And they came together for pretty similar reasons. They found that some of their faculty members were being released from universities because of criticisms they've made about labor practices, about social and economic issues. It happened at a number of universities. They said, hey, we've got to come together collectively to support our team. And from 1954, you've had that take place. Well, guess what? In Chicago, where I was last weekend, one of the places you call home from your graduate work, the American Federation of Teachers was founded in 1916. Why? For similar reasons. Also to provide a professional pathway, also to make teaching more professional, but also you had some of their members also attacked for criticisms against the social, economic, political order of the day. And so that was 1915, 16, flash forward to, or, or fast forward to 2022. These two organizations are coming together and I think it could possibly happen. We know there was at one point talk of a merger years ago between AFT and NEA. It didn't happen. But I think the timing is right that this could actually happen. What are your thoughts? This is interesting. I'm like, I have thoughts as a practitioner and somebody who has experienced working in a university and experienced part of being in a union, and then thoughts like the, the research or education policy person in me. And when I was a research assistant professor at BU, hired right out of my doctoral program, I remember sitting in my office and somebody coming by and saying like, so you're part of the union now. I think it was a UAW, um, an affiliate, right? You're part of the union now and here are your papers, et cetera. And I remember thinking, I don't want that because I had just completed all of this research on, you know, I was looking at charter schools in particular and in the impacts of attempts to unionize charter schools, et cetera. And, I, and they were conflated in my brain. And as you know, you're going to pay your union dues whether you want to be a member or not. But then as an adjunct later, having left that more permanent position at the university to go into the kind of work that I do now, but still teaching as an adjunct faculty member, you know, I think that one can absolutely understand, especially as you say, how universities are really using a lot of adjuncts these days. Adjunct work does not pay a whole lot. Adjunct professors do a ton of work 
they often are not paid for preparation. They are often really great teachers. And oftentimes you'll find people who work in the university who might be tenured professors who really don't want to teach. That's not their biggest interest. So I think that the practitioner in me understands why unions form and why practitioners want to form unions. But given your story, the policy person in me thinks, wow, what would be the real ramifications of such a union in terms of the consolidated political power here, which is, of course, the grab. And we know that AFT is also already wildly influential. So this is something I'd like to learn more about to see if it happens, because the idea of sort of a K to 16 influence, union exerted political influence, is interesting to say the least, Gerard, and not without its ramifications. Probably some good, but a little bit unsavory as well. I would hope that some of the things they cite, which sound like great reasons, are really what we think they are. So I don't know. Count me skeptical, but I think you're right that the time is right for this kind of move. Gerard, I told you at the outset that I was feeling a little bit grumpy today. So my question for you related to my story of the week is how are you feeling, my friend? What's your mood? Yes, I too am feeling grumpy. So I guess this is the learning curve grumpy day. It's the grumpy day. Yes. Yeah. I ask you because my article (laughs) talks about the fact that I'm maybe, what's the word, projecting here, that Republicans, my friend, are grumpy. So the title of my, they're grumpy grumpy lately. (laughs) Not a personal attack. Others are grumpy too. No, but the title of this article by John Gramlich is Republicans' confidence in K-12 principles has fallen sharply during the pandemic. And this is from the Pew Research Center. So it it's a poll. And another good title for this article might be really, truly, like, who wants to be a school principal or a school teacher these days? Because, boy, it's not a rosy picture. But the interesting sort of takeaway here is that pre-pandemic, most people were espousing a pretty good degree of confidence. So around half of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents would say that they have a great deal or fair amount of confidence in K-12 public school principals to act in the public's best interest. Now, that was a survey in 2021. But nearly as many, Gerard, 47% are saying that they have not too much or no confidence at all in principals. And so this is these numbers are different than before the pandemic. So you can probably pretty easily pin these numbers. As Pew starts to do, they say, well, you know, what have we been talking about lately? We have been talking about a ton of stuff in terms of mask mandates, in-person schooling, the kind of curricula that are being taught in school. We're seeing a number of states pass laws that are going to prescribe what can be taught in schools that has an impact on principals and teachers. But this it's a growing negativity, and that's the word that is in this article. And it's very much specific to Republicans, people who identify as Republicans or moderates who are right-leaning. And I think that this is fascinating. It also makes me a little bit sad that it's school principals that are the target of this. We know that we don't want school teachers to be the target, but this broader societal conversation around what's happening in our schools that parents may or may not like. To my mind, instead of pinning it on our school leaders and our school teachers, who many of them are bound by a lot of local state regulations anyway, I think we should be having a greater conversation, Gerard, about what parents need to know 
to make them feel better about their schools, to make them feel better about school leaders and what kind of insight they need into their school, into what's going on in the school, into what's being taught in the school. And that's not to say that they will always get to exert influence, but that they have a window into, and that's what the pandemic gave them, right? A window into what's going on in school. So I found this one very interesting, if not a little bit disheartening. Maybe that's why I'm a little bit grumpy today because parents are just as divided along ideological lines as the rest of us are. And of course, many of us are parents, but it feels again, Gerard, like we're just in sort of a tough place in this country right now. And boy, oh boy, it cannot be fun to be a school leader. And I know you've been working with a lot of school leaders, talking to a lot of school leaders. Do you have any insight here? Yeah, as many of you know, I'm vice president of education at the Advanced Studies and Culture Foundation in Charlottesville. We're linked to the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia. And one of the projects that I was able to support with the support from Catherine Bassett, who is a former 2000 Teacher of the Year for New Jersey, is to bring on over 100 educators from all 50 states and all commonwealths except one to talk about education and in those conversations at a number of principals. And so I'm with you. Being a principal is a tough job. I've said for years, I believe the toughest job in education has been the superintendent. But I think during the pandemic, it's really circled down to the school principal because so much of what's taking place is building base. And what's happening at one building may be radically different than another. And so principals have had it tough. Let's just, for our listeners, do a quick overview of school principal profession for the lab, you know, from 1999 to 2018. And so roughly we have 90,900 principals employed at our schools across the country. 68% are elementary school principals, 22% secondary school principals, and 9% are leaders of combined elementary and secondary schools. In 1999, 56% of the principals were male. In 2018, 54% of the principals are women. And so there's been a shift in who is in the leadership position. In terms of race, 1999, 82% of the principals were white. In 2018, 78%. So the number's gone down a bit. Uh, Where's the increase coming from? It's really in Hispanics. They moved from 5% to 9% of the population for principals, while African-Americans have remained steady during the time at 11%. Many of them bring to the classroom teaching experience. Uh, Some of them also bring in public and private sector experience. During the pandemic, they've had to take the best that they learned from education schools or graduate schools they attended to the profession. They also had to bring in their role as a mom or a dad, as an adult caregiver for a sick spouse or a loved one. They've also had to bring in the role of being an entrepreneur, picking up and doing things that, frankly, our education as educators may not necessarily have prepared you for. I would say that even for people who have an MBA. And so there was so much put upon them. Now, the idea that there's such a massive shift in one year between Republicans pre-pandemic and now may speak more to the just hyper-partisan nature of how we view education today, particularly public schooling. I am sure, as I have friends on both sides of the fence, but I know there are a number of Republicans who voted for Democrats at the local level who decided in the 2020 election to vote for Governor Youngkin, well, now Governor Youngkin, and that team, in part because of what they saw 
as just lack of ingenuity, preparedness, or something from their local public school principal where St. Mary's down the street, charter school down the street, or even the virtual schools, both public and private, seem to be working. So I would read that with a grain of salt. It also makes me concerned because as we have hyperpartisanship already at the national level, we have elections coming up for Congress. That's another conversation we'll deal with post-election in November. But at the point we're starting to focus on school leaders, the leaders who are responsible for teachers, who have to also represent their school before the superintendent and the school board, but also to the community, if we think that we've lost trust in them, and we also realize, according to Pew and also according to data from Gallup, that Congress and the presidency are held amongst the lowest issue of trustworthiness amongst other public servants, whether it's police, fire, or other, or military. This is not good. This is not good. I just feel, Gerard, we're at a place where we all need one thing that we can agree on, just like puppies, something. <laughs> we could all, could all agree on. And boy, oh boy, uh, school leaders and teachers, they're going through a lot, like you said. Okay, well, we're going to be speaking to next somebody who, I don't know, every time I talk to her, she seems quite cheerful. We have with us Leslie Heiner. She is, as many of you know, Vice President of Legal Affairs at EdChoice, and she's got a lot to say, eager to talk to her right after this. Learning Curve listeners, as promised, we are back with Leslie Heiner Esquire. She is the Vice President of Legal Affairs, Director of Legal Defense and Education Center at EdChoice, the nation's leading educational choice organization. Heiner is an attorney with extensive state legislative and executive branch experience. In Indiana, I'm Hart Hoosier here. She was the first female chief of staff to the Speaker of the House, counsel to the Senate President Pro Temp, and general counsel elections deputy to the Secretary of State. A founding board member of one of Indiana's first charter schools, Leslie served as chairman of the board for the first several years, guiding the school's growth from about 150 to over 1,000 students. She was also directly involved in developing Indiana's original charter school law, one of the best of the nation, and Indiana's voucher law, the largest in the country to date. They also have a new ESA. We might have to talk about that. Leslie is a longtime member of the Federalist Society and a Lugar Series Excellence in Public Service alumna. She's been cited in numerous national publications, including the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Washington Times, Forbes, and U.S. News and World Report, among others. She earned her Juris Doctorate from the University of Akron School of Law and her Bachelor of Arts degree from the College of Worcester. Other than that, all I have to say, listeners, is she's just a lovely and kind person. And so, Leslie, welcome to The Learning Curve. Well, thank you so much. That's very, that's a lovely introduction. It's, well, it's quite a quite a bio you have there. All right, Leslie. So, Gerard and I have some school choicey questions for you. We have some legal questions for you. I want to dig into sort of what's going on lately. But for our listeners, we talk a lot about sort of current cases on The Learning Curve. Our listeners have heard us talk a lot about Espinoza, for example, but we rarely travel back in time. So I'm wondering, 
Can you help us understand? Let's start with Brown v. Board of Education. I mean, just, you know, in two minutes, a history lesson here. Brown v. Board of Education, and what on earth that had to do with today's school choice movement? And maybe you could even take us through, for example, the real landmark 2002 Supreme Court decision, Zelman v. Harris, which upheld one of the very first voucher programs in Ohio. Can you talk us through a little bit of the legal here? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to do that. I should say that first, there was a, before Brown, by about 30 years, there was a major U.S. Supreme Court case called Pierce versus Society of Sisters, where voters in Oregon had actually voted to mandate that all children could only attend public schools. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, oh, no, 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 no. You do not get to standardize the children And the court went on to say that parents are the ones who have the authority to choose education for their children. So that in itself was a very significant movement. Now, that was part of a movement at the time, the early 20th century, to standardize schools, standardize children. But then at the same time, we had Rosenwald schools that opened that were solely for black children. And in fact, in 1928, one-third of the schools in the South were for Black children, were these Rosenwald schools. They didn't have all the supplies, but many of those students got a good education until Brown. So Brown came along and highlighted that notwithstanding this activity to standardize schools, they were standardized for white children, and Black children were being significantly left out. But then in that ruling in Brown, first they said having separate schools, separate but equal, that was thrown out the window in the first Brown decision. However, then the question was, okay, well, now what do we do? So there's a second Brown decision that said that the schools had to be desegregated with all deliberate speed. Well, It's a little bit of unfortunate wording there because it left a lot of room for interpretation. So some schools did well with desegregation, but other school boards were really challenged by district lines and housing patterns. And so this was a real struggle for the school system. So now we have two things that happened there just in the 20th century, this attempt to try to standardize all the children. Okay, so that didn't work so well. And then when the Brown decision came along, and this was the obvious wake-up call to the nation that black children lacked access to to education, and that had to change. (laughs) That, That became really crystal clear. But how to affect that change was the real struggle. And, of course, the state immediately defaulted to, well, we'll see, you know, the government will do this. The government will control it. The government will do it. It didn't start real well. So then we had busing that kicked in about in 71, continued until about 1980 with some mixed results. Well, depending on who you talk to, it it either worked well or it didn't. But there is some research, though, that shows that the achievement gap between black children and white children had significantly narrowed by 1980, when pretty much that was about the time that busing ended. So here we have the situation where the government is trying to have a system 
that works for every child, that the children are all standardized, that the government is in control, and it just wasn't working right. <laughs> I, so lo and behold, then we have the voucher program that came along that Ohio passed in 1996, and then there was litigation against the voucher program. It was a voucher for children living in Cleveland, Ohio, and suddenly we saw the light. The, the U.S. Supreme Court was so great. The Zellman versus Simmons-Harris decision was just a wonderful decision because the court said, look, under a voucher program, the big difference is that the money for educating a child goes to a parent. And at the moment that the parent has control over that money to then decide where the child should go to school, at that point, there is a break between the state and the parent. And the parent's choice of a school, that is solely the parent's choice, not the state. So that did two things for us. The first thing is that suddenly now in the 21st century, uh, we moved from the government trying to fix everybody to now here's a new system where parents can be in control. Parents can decide what's the best education for their children. And the second thing that it did is that by making that break between the state and the parent, because it's the parent choosing the school, if the parent chooses a religious school, state has nothing to do with that choice. That is a free exercise of the parent's own religion if the parent chooses to send the child to a religious school. Leslie, I want to I wanna push this a little bit. So you're talking about an era where government thought they were going to fix everything for everybody. And I think the first case you were talking about, one of my favorite lines from the court's decision is that, right, the child is not the mere creature of the state. So kind of setting the tone for us getting to a place where parents have more direction and say, but of course, that first voucher program that I asked you to tell us about and in the Zellman decision was really about, of course, allowing parents to take their tuition dollars to privately run schools. Now, today, one of the big arguments that we hear, especially with regard to our public charter schools is that, oh my goodness, they are segregated. You were talking about this time in Brown, you know, people assume, and I think you're right to point this out, that in the pre-Brown era, that all schools for black children must have been terrible. When the reality is, is that as you said, many of those schools were very high performing, probably very affirming for black children. And post-Brown in the busing area, one of the great tragedies, if you look at the research, is that we lost amazing black school leaders (laughs) and school teachers all pushed out of the system. Now, today we have charter schools, which might be heavily segregated in the sense that majorities, parents of color are choosing to send their children to these charters for whatever reason. It might be achievement. It might be they want their children to be around other children who look like them. Various reasons, right? Where are we with regard to do these arguments against charter schools or attempts to try and say you can't have these schools because they're segregated by race. Legally, where are we at? What does that mean? In my opinion, I don't think it means very much because, again, first we start here that the choice belongs to the parent. And the Supreme Court has been very clear about that now for a 100 years 
that the parents have that right under the Constitution. So we start there. Secondly, we've also found that in traditional district public schools, they are as segregated today as they have ever been. So to assume that charter schools may be more segregated or or any other school may be and only that district schools can be segregated. No, no, the arguments get turned upside down and none of this makes any sense if you are looking at this from the perspective of a system of schools. If your priority is that there has to be a system of schools that only operates in one way, then maybe what you just talked about could be a problem. However, we've moved past that now to recognize that it's not the system that matters. It's not standardizing children into some system of schools that matters. What matters is the individual children themselves and how they learn. So you're right. One of the things that we discovered much to our detriment after the Rosenwald schools closed, is that we lost a lot of really great black teachers. And we still have a problem with that to this day. So anytime a parent is going to choose a school, let's say if you are a black parent and you want your child to go to a predominantly black school where there are black teachers, whether it's a charter school or whatever school it is, that's your right. And you're going to make that choice because of a variety of reasons. You know that this is going to be a comfortable, safe place for your child. And we all know when children feel safe and they're comfortable and they're happy, that's when they learn. And that's the point. And that should always be the only point that we are prioritizing. Well, Leslie, speaking of learning, this is an opportunity for people who listen to our show to hear from you, particularly as an attorney, but also someone who's used her legal background and thinking to also shape public policy. And there are many lawyers who argue cases who never step foot in public policy. And there are people with a law degree who'll step into the uh, foray of public policy, but never had a chance to do anything with litigation. And you've done both, and particularly in a market called school choice. So in 2020, the Supreme Court ruled uh, in favor of Kendra Espinoza, who we've had on the show. That was a victory for the parental choice movement. Right now, the Supreme Court is considering what they're going to do with the tuitioning program in Maine and Carson. For our listeners who are interested in your work and your role, what do you tell them is at hand if, in fact, the court rules in favor of Carson? What does it mean for mom and dad? What does it mean for schools? Oh, it means the world, Gerard. (laughs) This is really as I spoke earlier about what was happening during the 20th century, and now in the 21st century, we're beginning to really see the light and place more value on families and parents and the learning potential for children. These two decisions mean everything. What's happened previously is that states would prohibit parents from choosing a religious school or a certain type of religious school Or as in the Carson case out of Maine, Maine said, well, if you're a religious school, you can, a parent can choose a religious school. 
just as long as that school doesn't actually act religious, which is a little far out, but there actually is a legal standard there regarding legal status of the school, which would be their status as a religious entity versus how they use the funding at that religious school. Now, I will say that we are expecting that this court that has been very clear in decisions over the last 20 years in particular, that religious freedom matters, this court has been very willing to uphold religious liberty across the board. We expect them to do the same thing here. So what that really means is that in so many cases we've seen in states where legislators would get a little nervous about passing a voucher program or some kind of school choice program because, well, if we have religious schools that participate, then maybe we're going to get sued. Maybe it's going to be a problem. We really don't want to do that. And so they have backed off from offering school choice. But with this Carson decision, what, what I'm really hoping is that the language of this decision will be clear enough so that there won't be any of that kind of hesitation anymore. I've been telling people now for quite a while, school choice is constitutional. Go with that because that's where it is. School choice is constitutional. It's important to design programs to make sure that the programs meet the four squares of the Constitution, but frankly, that's not hard to do. And so I think these decisions just open up the world for parents and for children. The ABCs of school choice, which Ed Choice puts out annually, is a go-to book for me. Because not only do you lay out the different type of choice programs in the United States, which are educating more than 500,000 students, there's always a policy component, but also a legal component. And you haven't seen how the sausage is made in state government and also (laughs) seen politics (laughs) at a real level. Let's just say the Supreme Court rules in favor, and that's another win for parental choice. How do you see anti-parental choice lawmakers at the state level responding? How should we who support parental choice gear ourselves up for we know what would be the next battle in the parental choice wars? We're beginning to see some of the new battles emerge now. The Espinoza decision was, it was huge. So that really triggered the opposition to start looking around for other ways to block parents from choosing the schools of their choice. And what we're seeing now is that we still see challenges to funding, adequacy funding. They will allege that public schools lose money if there's a school choice program and the state constitutions prohibit the state from diminishing funding to public schools. We normally, not in every case, but we normally beat that back with a basic principle that every school, no matter what kind of school, public, private, whatever it is, should be paid fairly, equitably for the children served by that school. But you don't get paid if you don't serve children. So if a child leaves the school for any reason, it's just unreasonable to think that somehow that school should continue to be getting money when they're not providing any services. That just doesn't make any sense. 
So those arguments are really falling by the wayside, which is great. Interestingly enough, opponents are also using, shockingly, some of those old lang- the old arguments from the 20th century that I spoke about earlier in saying that all the schools should be standardized. There should only be one system of education and all the children should learn all the same things in exactly the same ways. And it's all about the system, not really about whether or not a child is learning. Those are called uniformity challenges. They continue to bring them. They continue to lose those challenges. So we're going to keep up with that. They also have brought some challenges regarding discrimination and equal protection. However, I will say the courts have not been really eager to pick up those arguments and really address them very much because, frankly, they don't really apply very well to school choice programs, and so the courts don't normally go there. Now, I will say that people who support this, though, look for the odd things to come up. We've seen some zoning challenges to try to zone religious schools out of an area. Not great, but it happens. And then there are a couple cases that are as applied challenges. So, for example, in North Carolina, the North Carolina Supreme Court said the Zatchers are perfectly constitutional there. Said that about, oh, geez, about seven years ago now. But now there's another challenge saying that the way they're implementing the voucher program is not right. That case is not going anywhere at the moment either, but it's just another way to challenge. So, yes, our people who advocate for school choice should understand that those who oppose it are primarily those who really want the control over education to standardize the children in a standardized system. So they'll continue to look for any little nook and cranny where they can insert an argument and try to make us crazy and work overtime to support these parents who want nothing more than the opportunity to send their child to a school where they know their child will be safe and will be able to learn and be successful. And for our listening base who are funders, what Leslie said is really key because those who do not support parental choice, or at least the version that we support, they've got a lot of funders who are putting in millions of dollars into their coffers, as well as teacher unions to argue against this. There's gonna be a major fight going ahead. So hopefully you'll do the same for our side of the fence. Here's the last question for you. And it's really geared for your response to students in law school or practicing attorneys who may work in another field other than education, but really have an interest in it. They don't have to leave their profession to be involved in litigation and strategy cases, but you also have law school students today who believe the only way they can be involved in education law is through the traditional route. What do you say to those students who are thinking about walking on the wild side of the law and what role parental choice litigation and strategy and lawmaking can mean for them? Oh, well, I'm the poster child for this question. I did not go to law school to practice this kind of law. My specialty is international law, actually. But I had a case early on. I had a client at a five-day trial where the question was, who is the proper person or entity to decide where a child goes to school? 
And I won that case. It was a big win. I was so excited. But this is where I learned the importance of the critical importance of educational choice. But at that time, then my husband and I went on to buy a trucking business. And then after we owned the business, then I worked for the legislature, was in private practice, but back and forth. And so in my career path, I've been advocating for educational choice since the mid-1980s, but I found it very easy to be deeply involved in this issue, regardless of what job I had. And so this is the sort of thing for law students. First of all, I would strongly encourage them to know this issue, learn this issue for a couple reasons. Um, the first is, if they are ever planning to have children, they want to know what their options are. They need to understand this. This becomes important. The second thing is that the school choice cases have been defining First Amendment law. We are making significant movement in protecting our religious liberty rights under the First Amendment as a result of the challenges that have been brought to these school choice programs. And for anyone who's a new lawyer or interested, constitutional law is awesome. <laughs> it, it is just the most fundamentally exciting area of the law that you can think of because you're dealing in a very pure way with the fundamental liberties of this country our individual liberties. And that's very exciting to be able to do that and to make a difference. So I would encourage lawyers to consider this. Call me if you want some advice. Be happy to talk to, to anyone who may be interested in this. And then otherwise, look to your legislature or nonprofit groups in your state who are advocating for school choice and see how you can help. I guarantee you they'll take you up on the offer. If you if you offer to help, everybody needs a good lawyer to read over the law and say, what what does the Constitution really say? Can you help us with this? There's always a role for a good lawyer to play. Well, sage advice from a good lawyer. Leslie Heiner, thank you so much for spending this time with us. I know we both appreciate it very much. Great to hear your voice and to learn from you today. Well, thank you very much. I'm just so grateful that you are giving so much attention to this issue. There are parents across the country who just really need this and their children are desperate for the opportunities. This is a fight worth fighting. Amen. <laughs> All right, Leslie, be well, take care, and we hope to talk to you soon. Great. Thanks so much. And my tweet of the week comes from Education Next, and it says, rather than reducing the hard work of reading to summarize the meaning of a passage in a single sentence, teachers can ask middle and high school students to rewrite an author's words in their own words. I think that is sage advice, if nothing more than to give students an opportunity to articulate his or her voice through a platform of someone else's language to either A, understand what the author had to say in his or her view, 
or worldview. Number two, to show what students can think or how they can interpret what the author had to say. And then third, how to take what another author wrote and to inculcate it into the life experiences of a student. Those are just three lanes to walk amongst many lanes, but these lanes provide the student an opportunity to participate in meaning making, not in the legalistic aspect of strict constructionism versus original intent, as much as saying, huh, this is what I saw. And that's my tweet of the week. That's pretty cool. Also, as a former English teacher, I will say, Getting kids to restate an author's argument in their own words is a really good way to teach them how not to play dress. <laughs> Something that I dealt with <laughs> all the time, not only as a high school English teacher, but as a professor as well. It was like, really? Did you write this? Gerard, next week, we will have with us a titled person. This is great. Lord Charles Moore. He is a columnist at The Spectator, former editor of The Daily Telegraph, and the authorized three-volume biographer of Lady Margaret Thatcher. I I have been watching The Crown lately, and I've been on Margaret Thatcher's yes. season, and oh, man, so cool. Anyway, Gerard, I wish you a little bit of sunshine the rest of your day, and next time we're back together, I'm sure we'll both be quite cheerful. So you have a good one. You too, and I guess the next time we talk, we will be less Oscar the Grouch and more Big Bird. We're going to, yeah, we're going to do our best, and you can you can open with a song, so I'll be looking forward to that. <laughs> Take care. All right, bye-bye.